Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, next week we'll see Hamilton start to open back up, but what exactly can Hamiltonians do once that happens? It's starting to look a lot like Premier Doug Ford is moving less of a leadership role and more into campaign mindset. Ontario is still under restrictions. Is that a wise political move? And we hear more and more about Canada's history with residential school systems. It's truly heartbreaking, but thoughts and prayers only go so far. What needs to be done? It's all coming up to Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. As we know, there's been a great deal of concern about uh, the economy and the impact that the pandemic has had. Uh, Other parts of the country have moved a lot faster than we have in in implementing uh, the reopening and and opening the doors for more and more people. Uh, We are, I'm going to be generous here and say being cautious in Ontario. Anyway, uh, phase two starts a couple of days earlier than the scheduled uh, start that uh, the Premier talked about a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so what is entailed with that? What can we do? What can't we do? What can we anticipate? Joining us to talk about this is uh, Paul Johnson. Paul, of course, is the director of the Emergency Centre for the City of Hamilton during this pandemic. He's a busy guy. Paul, really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Thanks. Uh, it's great to be with you, Bill. Let me ask you right off the bat, because I know that just about everything that we talk about here and about what's opening, what's not, and, and, and you know the way that we're going to do this is very much tied to, to the number of cases in the vaccine program. If you could, maybe, let's let's start off there and talk about what's happening here in this area uh, with the, the hospitalizations, ICU. I know that when we talked to Dr. Richardson earlier this week, uh, she seemed quite pleased about the fact that those numbers are down considerably. Now, I, I say that with the qualifier that, of course, this Delta variant is out there someplace. Is it having an impact? Do you see any spikes, or are we still holding our own, I guess? Well, it's certainly a concern, the Delta variant, and the spike that uh, that everybody's watching with great interest because it shows how fast things can change is in the uh, uh, the Waterloo region area. Yeah. Uh, so there's a region that's decided they are not moving it to step two next week uh, with the rest of the province, and it's uh, solely driven by the fact that they have, uh, uh, you know, an increased number of cases and, and uh, in certain areas have some outbreaks that they want to get control of. So it, it is a reminder that we are... Uh, you know, we're not out of this. This isn't that uh, we've reached uh, we've reached the end, and now it's just how come we can't do this and how come we can't do this. It, it is about trying to balance reopening, getting back to doing some activities, but recognizing just how fast things can change. Locally, uh, we're in good shape. I mean, the variant is there. Dr. Richardson is concerned about it all the time. But if you look provincially, uh, I was uh, informed by. Uh, Rob McIsaac from Hamilton Health Sciences, below 300 in terms of uh, hospitalized COVID-19 patients across the province um, for the first time in a long time. So those are good indicators locally, uh, good capacity uh, from a hospital perspective. Our vaccine rates, you know, creeping up towards that 75% range for first dose and and creeping towards 25% for fully vaccinated with two doses uh, in Hamilton. So it's a, it's a, a tremendous reminder of how well people are doing getting that vaccine Uh, we need to keep that rolling but it puts us in the position where uh, you know i think the steps that are being taken to allow more activities uh, particularly in an outdoor setting are um, are a high time and it's the right time and let's go do it interesting point about kw if i could just go back there for a second uh they've they've said no we're not ready for this now i know when you and i've talked in the past uh you are pretty much tied to the provincial guidelines in other words you can't say uh to the ministry well no we're, we're in pretty good shape we're going to go to phase three you have to follow those guidelines but from what you're telling me you, you can opt not to go forward if you think that there's a, a concern in your community 
Absolutely. And that's uh, the role of uh, medical officers of health. And it would be no different here in Hamilton if there was a, if Dr. Richardson felt that there was a reason uh, that we shouldn't move forward. And you saw it in the Porcupine Health District uh, yeah. as they, as we moved into step one, there was uh, some outbreaks up north. And you've seen it happen from time to time. Uh, you've seen medical officers of health work with their school boards when schools were open to say, no, you're, you're, you're out for another week. We're going to take a break, those types of things. So those are the, you know, the good local measures that can happen. And in case of, of Waterloo, they clearly felt that uh, they wanted a little more time uh, to get control of those cases and make sure that uh, that they were doing everything they could to get those case counts down and not exasperated by by having more and more activities occur. But uh, in our area, um, you know, we're 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 being cautious. We're we're hopeful that uh, we don't see any large up uh, upticks in the number of cases for whatever reason in this community. And uh, but happy to see some of this stuff uh, moving forward in terms of the reopening. Are you happy with the the way the vaccine program is rolling out? Uh, the, the the uptake on that. Uh, very happy with the way it's rolling out, and to date, very happy with how our numbers have have looked. There's you know a few things happening now. It is starting to slow down, and so you're into uh, into that last period of time where now you're trying to really get to uh, people who have um, who have not. Uh, step forward for any amount of vaccine, whether it's the first dose, let alone getting the second dose. And so that's a, a concern because we're we're starting to run into some of that slowdown. And now it really is about making sure we've got enough appointments, uh, getting that supply in and getting everybody that second dose so they can be fully vaccinated. But, you know, the numbers are very strong. The way we've run this program has been has been very good. And, and now it's going to be the really heavy lifting of working with parts of our community uh, and and uh, whether it's geographically based or whether it's population based and really trying to do that, that ongoing encouragement of vaccine uh, readiness so that people can get that first dose and get that second dose and be fully covered. Uh, the reticence that some people have, we'll get into that in just a second, uh, is one thing. But is there also a concern here that, that there are some people in the community that maybe don't understand or you haven't reached out to uh, to, let, to let them know how they can do this? Is, uh, is there a better way of communicating with them? Uh, we're always looking for those better ways, and, and so public health is working with community organizations. So we have ambassadors now out in the field. Uh, we have organizations that have taken on the, uh, uh, the, the operation of some of these vaccine clinics in order to uh, help um, uh, make sure that we can get people in. Uh, the Dwada Desne, for instance, the original community health center, uh, working uh, very much in a, in a uh, clinic setting and, and the Restoration House Clinic being turned over to community organizations to run everything and really work hard at uh, getting people into those clinics. We're really thrilled that ArcelorMittal DeFasco stepped up and, and they are fully running another clinic, which allows access geographically to more people in this community. So those are the things that we continue to do, continue to talk about it from a, from a communication perspective. But this is the hard work that will that will dominate our activities over the coming months is to uh, now get to those that, um, for a variety of reasons, I have not chosen to step forward and have a vaccine so far. Early days of the uh, the vaccine, Paul, going back into the early months of this year, I guess, uh, when we started to get things rolling here, you'd mentioned at the time that one of the strategies that you wanted to employ uh, was to reach out to leaders in some of these communities within the, uh, the greater Hamilton area and, and have them as advocates for that. Is that working? Uh, it is to some degree, but it's slow and steady work. I mean, I've been doing community development for a long time. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's the right model. It's a good model. Uh, but it doesn't mean that it's going to be successful uh, with the flick of a switch. And so, uh, yes, continue to work with the with leaders in in um, 
racialized communities and our indigenous communities uh, and and at a local level from a geographical perspective partnering with organizations that can get the message out uh, you know your neighbors your community associations whatever it is uh, talking to you is sometimes a better thing than listening to the media or listening to uh, uh, public health or civic officials so whatever it takes uh, we're going to do and and look at ways that we can tailor campaigns over the summer uh, to make sure that people continue to understand the importance of receiving uh, that vaccine. And then if there are access issues that we need to solve coming out of those conversations, locations, times, uh, the, the, the mode of how we're delivering the vaccine, we can adjust our, our piece to that. But we feel we have that in, in check. We've got good, large mass vac sites that are very efficient and effective and lots of people moving through those. And then we have smaller, uh, whether they're ongoing clinics or pop-up clinics, that offer people a little bit of a different approach uh, for those that don't feel comfortable coming to a large centre, say like the First Ontario Centre, to get their vaccine. Uh, many have been pleased to be able to go to some of these smaller sites. So I think logistically we're set up. Uh, I think it's going to be more work at a community level, more work with, with leaders in this community uh, to encourage people to take that step. When you're doing the counting on this here, do you track exactly which location uh, is getting most of the reaction to this? You mentioned the first Ontario Centre downtown, uh, the Braley Centre. I mean, there's a number of different places, and, and that makes sense. I mean, downtown is where there's the, you know, the heaviest concentration of people that, that are living there. And I, I hear an awful lot of people going to the St. Joe's campus on West 5th for that as well. But do you, do you track and find out if, if you're reaching those groups that, that really need uh, to be reached in situations like this? Because I'm, I'm hearing anecdotally uh, from a lot of people that are using those downtown facilities that say they're busy most of the time yeah you know our our mass vaccination sites the two downtown hamilton health sciences uh, uh, first ontario center and then the one on the mountain at west fifth through st joe's they are consistently busy and that's where the majority of people are signing up okay. uh, lots of uh, lots of places available and then we track for the other ones that we have and we have dozens of other pop-up clinics or mobile clinics and things uh, we do look at whether they're they're meeting the needs, but sometimes it is about making sure that we are accessible. So even if the numbers aren't huge, uh, we do need to be places where people are, and whether those are in the uh, the rural parts of, of Hamilton or whether those are in specific neighborhoods, uh, we're going to continue to be there. And what it does offer is, yeah, it won't be as busy. It's not going to be the same setup as a mass vaccination clinic. But for those that are a little bit nervous, for those who want to be in a smaller, uh, more intimate environment for it, uh, that works really well. So if that means we're only doing 50 to 100 doses a day, that's perfectly fine because for those folks, they might not have gone to a larger facility. So that's the the rationale for the way the logistics are rolling out. We're always trying to tweak it based on, on the feedback we receive from the community. All right, let's uh, step into what we're going to be doing. And, and by the way, when I say we're going to move into phase two, I just want to remind our listeners, not today. Uh, it's going to be June 30th, okay? So uh, it's still, you know, the usual stuff going on for at least another week here, too. Uh, somebody asked me yesterday when they made the announcement, they said, the phase two, that's uh, just like what we had back when. I said, it's all a blur to me. I forget. Uh, but it was sometime earlier this year where we had this sort of thing. Uh, so uh, the number of gatherings outside and, and indoors is going to increase, not significantly, but marginally. And and uh, there are a few other things that are going on here, too, vis-a-vis uh, -vis dining and uh, what they call non-essential businesses. Yeah, so, you know, this, this move to step two is really about expanding outdoor options for folks with uh, some notable uh, indoor things happening, which I'll get to in a second. So it's really more about outdoor. So for those expecting, you know, large amounts of indoor spaces to open, that's not happening quite yet. 
but it is an expansion of those outdoor activities and getting back to some of the uh, and, and increasing some of the capacity for particularly the non-essential retail. Uh, so the big change, though, from an indoor capacity is on the social gathering side. Now it is uh, uh, permitted to have up to five people gather indoors from a social gathering perspective. So that's a change up until this point. Um, and as of today, there is it's prohibited. So starting next Wednesday, you can have five people indoors, up to five people. The other piece is that those personal services, the haircuts and the hair salons, the barbershops, uh, they are allowed to open uh, as of uh, June 30th as well, um, provided that masks can be worn at all times within the facilities and there's appointment-only based uh, services there. So that's an indoor activity that's new. to, uh, uh, to uh, for, and We haven't had that for quite some time as some of us with a bit of a shaggy look uh, can attest to. The other pieces that will happen is increased capacities within non-essential businesses and essential businesses. So more people are allowed in at one time. But uh, those businesses, of course, have been open since step one. From an outdoor capacity, more people on patios, six people to a table uh, on the patio front. Uh, but the other good news is now there is uh, limits being set for things like outdoor concerts and festivals and events. So it can be up to 25% of the outdoor capacity of the venue, which means, Bill, we can be back to having live music outdoors uh, and having some of those outdoor concerts or even outdoor festivals at a 25% capacity. So that's a big shift, and that lets us know that we're getting back to some of those activities that we all look forward to in the summer. Small point, but I mean, I was at a patio. Rebecca and I were there just the other day, one of our favorite places downtown. Uh, and somebody asked, her, can you have music? Because they usually did. And they said, no, we're not allowed to. But they will be allowed to. Uh, in other words, if they want to have somebody uh, playing yeah. guitar or something at the outside patio, not indoors, but outside. Outdoors on the patio, they can have music. The only restriction is that the musicians need to be at least three meters away from any patron or there needs to be a physical barrier. So as long as you've got the right spacing in place, uh, you can see outdoor patio uh, with some music uh, or concerts and then obviously some of the larger outdoor venues and not only in Hamilton but in other places that are that are surrounding us. Uh, there's some great venues that offer some some awesome outdoor uh, uh, opportunities for, for music and, and um, entertainment and those will be able to go at a reduced capacity and so i understand 25 percent is is well down the capacity list but it's something bill we we start getting back towards more of those normal activities in a situation like this i, I know the premier had made a vow that uh, he figured by the end of the summer i guess by labor day weekend uh everybody in ontario would be double vaxxed anybody that wanted the vaccines is going to get one i know that's that's a political promise and i'm not going to make ask you to make a commitment like that too but are you confident that this program is going to continue here in this area that we're going to see those numbers and and even if we don't get there but be close to that by the end of the summer well, we're tracking well uh, on that, and certainly from a available to the public, uh, I believe that's very doable. The supply is is very solid. It, it um, I, I know people are fixated on on what the brand name is, but uh, we just look at it as vaccine. The vaccine coming in is going to be plentiful enough, uh, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, into this community that uh, we're going to be able to to offer those opportunities. Um, so we need people to step up. We need people to take those opportunities. Uh, we need people to step forward and, and do it. But I think from a, uh, you know, can we be there? Uh, the answer uh, is, uh, I, I think so. As opposed to earlier on in this program where the supplies were so constrained that this was going to take a long period of time. What's changed? Supply. And that's a good news story for us because we have the capacity to vaccinate a lot of people on a daily basis in this community. We've always been ready to do that. And uh, we are today.
Uh, and we just wanted to remind, we just about finished up here, I'm out of time, but uh, for the listeners who are still being concerned about this and a little hesitancy, uh, I've had so many doctors on in the last couple of days, Paul, and I just want to remind them, uh, Pfizer and Moderna are, are virtually the same thing. I, there's no reason to be vaccine shopping. As one doctor told me, it's like Coke and Pepsi. You want cola? You know, it's the same stuff. It's just a different brand name. That's really what it comes down to. It is, and, and people need to recognize, too, when you do those things, you also block, you know, if you walk away from your appointment because you say, hey, I'd rather get another brand name, well, somebody else didn't get that appointment because you had it. And so you're actually harming other people who want to step up, want to get the second uh, dose or their first dose as soon as possible. Um, so I really encourage people, A, to listen to those medical professionals who are saying exactly what you just said. These are mRNA vaccines, and they are uh, very effective, both of them, and, and you should roll up your sleeve for either one of them. And then the second piece is uh, walking away uh, not only you know, doesn't help you because you're not getting the vaccine. It also has an impact in terms of how we get other people in who want to get that vaccine. Exactly. Uh, well, we're trending in a positive way, and that's good news, I suppose. Paul, thanks as always. Great having you on the program today. Have a great weekend. You too, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. More than a few observers around the Queen's Park and provincial government have uh, noticed and opined uh, that it seems that uh, Premier Doug Ford seems to be moving into campaign mode uh, as opposed to governing mode. And uh, there is a difference exactly how that goes. And, uh, well, is that really the smart thing to be doing? Because uh, we're not out of the woods yet when it comes to the pandemic, and there's still an awful lot of work to be done on this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Richard Brennan, former journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many, many years. Uh, Badger, good to have you with us again. Hope you're doing well. Hi, Bill. Now uh, you're double vaxxed, aren't you? Oh yes. Okay. Okay. Oh, you can you can stay on the show then. All right. Uh, by the anyway, way, by the way, before we start, I'm just on my way back from Ottawa, where the place is a buzz with talk of election. I'm not surprised by that. I mean, didn't we see that? I, I will just let me just go down that road for a little bit, and then we'll get into our provincial stuff here. Uh, as much as it, it seemed to be an indicator, the the kind of rhetoric that was going back and forth uh, between the leaders uh, earlier this week seems to indicate that these guys. We talk about the premier being in election mode. Uh, those three party leaders are all in election. Well, I can probably throw the the block in there as well. Oh, de- definitely that. They've adjourned for the uh, summer, and they won't be coming back. There's going to be an election. Almost, I'm almost positive of that. Yeah, it's What's... just that the liberals are high in the polls right now, and the conservatives are low in the polls. So. I guess they're going to strike when the iron's high. Well, depending on, and you've seen this this play out before, uh, depending on which poll you're leading, the Liberals have a 10-point lead to a 4- or 5-point lead, something like that. Uh, I don't see them in majority territory yet, but it's still there's a comfort level there that I guess they're going to try to grab onto. Oh, I think I'm not guaranteeing there's going to be a majority, I, but uh, they're, they're going to go for it. They're hoping, you know, they'll hope like mad that they get one, but uh, I, don't, uh, I don't think it's a sure thing yet. Well, uh, when do you expect it? I mean, you, you talked to a lot of your, your uh, colleagues up there over the last little while. Uh, yeah. Are they anticipating sooner than later? I mean, before... Yeah, well, I, they're probably... I think they're talking about maybe uh, a September election. You know, so, the summer. And so he, he'd probably call it in August then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll, you know, and it won't be a long election. You know, maybe 35 days or 30 days. Right? I guess it's 35 days. Yeah. yeah, it won't be one of those gigantic elections that won't seem to go on forever. 
Well, uh, that seems to be the buzz around town, and uh, we'll see if it actually happens. Uh, there's a, a lot to go on between now and then. Uh, we know there's going to be an election here in Ontario. Uh, that's going to be next year, but a year from now, next June, uh, we will go to the polls once again. And uh, and obviously, Doug Ford would like to be reelected. Uh, and by the way, I, I want to preface what we're saying here, but how the premier seems to be moving into election mode. Uh, so is Andrea Horvath, and so is Stephen Del Duca. I mean, you know, but the, they're not they're not running the, the province right now. But I mean, I, I get that. The 12 months before this, you should be leaning towards the next election and developing strategies and things of this nature. But that's one of the uh, one of the problems with governing, isn't it? Is that you have to do that, but at the same time, you have a job to do. Well, yeah, and but you know, it, the wheels of government still you know grind away, regardless of what these uh, folks are up to. I mean, he's he's on a mission to reshape and remake himself. As, as you know, as, as you're a kindly, uh, lovable premier who's just one of the guys, and you're going to be seeing that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of tale throughout, you know, the next year or before the election. I mean, he's, he's desperately trying to tell people that, you know, we're, the pandemic's behind us, and, you know, we're, we're the government that needs you need to go into, you know, uh, for the economy to improve, to go into the future. And that will be the kind of uh, mantra that you'll hear for weeks now. But that raises the question, then, if he's uh, of the belief that, the, you know, the worst of the pandemic is behind us, then why are we going so slowly with the reopening plan? So it, that's the damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're headed that way. Uh, you know, it, it's a slow, it's a slow grind, but we're headed that way. And, and by the time the next election rolls around, things should be pretty open. You know, it may not be wide open, and we may be still wearing masks. God knows then, but certainly, the, the worst will be behind us, and that's that's the message he's going to be delivering. What kind of a strategy uh, would they be talking about? We mentioned that Corey Tanek, of course, who managed the last election, is, is back. Uh, and, and a lot of the other advisors that were part of the Ford campaign uh, in the last provincial election are back in there. And, and obviously, they're the ones who are going to be advising him these days. Uh, part of the strategy from the last election, as you and I talked about back then, was basically... It seems kind of like a reverse thing that you would expect, but they kind of pulled Doug Ford back, and not as many public appearances, not as many Q and A's with media. Uh, very, very structured and very controlled as to the message that got out there. Uh, yesterday was a classic example. I mean, you know, Dr. David Williams giving his last press conference as medical officer of health, handing the reins over. I, ordinarily, I'm sure the premier would have been there, as he has been with these daily press conferences. But he, uh, he was nowhere to be seen there. I figured, you know, let let these guys do this. I'm, I'm just going to stay in the background, uh, and and strategically make appearances now, as opposed to every day and everywhere. Well, you know, the old peekaboo can, uh, you know, campaign where you 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 know he makes himself available uh, periodically, but not all the time, and you know, so he doesn't he doesn't. Uh, uh, you know, mess up. He doesn't say you know something silly that will you know garner headlines in the paper. It, it's it's an old strategy. Let's let's face it. But uh, whether it will work or not, I mean, this this is always a question: Are people going to see that for what it is, or or will they just say, well, "Fine, we don't we we don't want to see him that much anyway." We saw him for several months every day, so maybe we don't need to talk, hear from him, or see him for. Uh, for the next little while. 
Well, it worked that way. I mean, that was Stephen Harper's strategy. It, it probably not coincidental that Corey Tank was part of those campaigns. Uh, but it was, as you say, it was strategic hit. You know, here's the thing. Uh, it, a lot of the time he wouldn't take questions, and if he did, it was maybe one, two questions, and that was it. Uh, and, and Ford seemed to employ that the last time around, and, and he won. So I, I, it's not surprising that they would try to do something like that again because, let's face it, when you're the incumbent, I don't care if you're Doug Ford or any other incumbent premier or, or prime minister, uh, you've got a track record, and there's a lot of things that people would like to ask Doug Ford about, you know, incursions into the Greenbelt, Highway 413, uh, the, the pandemic protocol, you know, the rollout. There's a lot of stuff going on here. And uh, if you're not in front of the microphones, you don't have to answer those questions. And, and that's it. You're right. Uh, you know, uh, tonight work, you know, with uh, Harper, and, they, and it will be, it'll be a controlled, I mean, maybe not so much now until we get right into the campaign. But sure. you can believe when we finally do get in the campaign, it will be tightly controlled. Uh, because they they don't they don't want you know he, he's he's not good on his feet um, so and they don't know you know uh, and, and God bless him they don't know what he's going to say next so you can just I, I can tell you right now it's going to be tightly controlled so he doesn't uh, doesn't mess up and, and by the that, by the way, that's not a, a direct criticism of Doug Ford. It's just, it's a reality. Uh, and he's not the only politician. Some of them just aren't very good in front of the microphone. Some of them just aren't very good at ad-libbing and delivering the message like that. It's, it's not his strength. And, and in an election campaign, one slip can really cause a lot of problems. Well, we've seen that time and time again where, you know, somebody, you know, uh, Tim Hudak saying that it's going to get rid of 100,000 jobs uh, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, that was the end. The, the election was done right then. Uh, John Tory, full funding for our, for all yeah, religious schools. Funding, yeah, and it's, it's been you know one one example after the other over many many years, where a slip up can cost you an election, and that's what they do not want. They don't want any slip ups. And so what he's going to be he's going to be uh, you know for the, this summer he'll be doing the you know the barbecue uh, swing and you know chatting with people and going to towns and. You know, just walking around and, and making himself available, just you know, with the regular folks. But whether he makes himself available to the media will be another question. And I suggest that that won't happen very much. Even even beginning now, I think the uh, the lid's going to be down somewhat. Is part of the strategy in a situation like this, if you're going to do these things, like the barbecue circuit, as they call it, uh, make sure it's a friendly place. In other words, it, I, I just saw something on Facebook yesterday about a, uh, it's a fundraiser. I think it's a virtual fundraiser with the Premier and Rod Phillips, who just he brought back into Cabinet. And it's 1600 bucks to enter or something. It's a fundraiser for the party, obviously. We, we know that. Uh, but but is, is that the sort of thing you do? I mean, he's going to go to, to barbecues where it's a, a conservative crowd that he, he, you know, in other words, he's preaching to the faithful. Yeah, you're not going to see him downtown Toronto. Yeah, you know, in Toronto Centre or someplace like that. He, he's not going to make an appearance there. He's going to go where his where he has strength. And that's they they all do that. They're they're going to play, go where they the people are friendly towards him and the party. They certainly aren't going to venture into uh, enemy territory by any stretch. At and what you see, po- this, you see go before you go, you see you see you see the other leaders too. Where like you mentioned previously, that they're starting to gear up. There's you know, uh, Andrew Horvath has uh, ads on TV now. I wish she'd uh, asked me before because I think her, her ad is terrible, but that's another thing. <laughs> <laughs> 
At no, what it, point? It, all at, signs are pointing to it. That's for sure. Yeah. At what point do you actually, you know, throw caution to the wind and say, okay, we're in full campaign? I know they're going to drop the writ, and that's that's all part of the process. Uh, but you know, the, the provincial legislatures on summer break right now too. And uh, there's already, I think, there's a date when they have a return. I think it's sometime in late September, if I can recall. Uh, but that still leaves them about five or six months of, of, of time before the election actually holds. Uh, but on the other hand, I can remember Mike Harris at one point uh, didn't call the House back after the the summer recess at all, and, and they just sat there and did nothing, and then all of a sudden he called an election. Now, Ford has that as an option, by the way. When we say the next election is, is June, uh, I believe the legislation indicates that he can call it sooner if he wants. Oh, oh I, I absolutely he can call it sooner. Uh, whether whether he whether he does or not, it'll all depend on the polls. Just like federally, they'll sure. look at the polls and say, "Boy, this is this is the time to go." And whether he does that, no, I, I'm not so sure. You're you're really, I mean, look what happened to David Peterson when he called an election many many years ago. Mm-hmm. Held an early election, and it was it was his downfall, a major contributor anyway. So you, you take a chance by doing that. Now, I really don't think that's going to happen but why why would you call an election when you can when you can uh you know skip and and scotch across the province and the and the taxpayers are paying for it you know, once cl- you call an election it, you know the parties have to pay for it but yeah. now they, they can you know do, do the uh, barbecue circuit and you and i are paying for it yeah, there's a, there's a classic story about David Peterson. He was, of course, the Liberal per, Premier for, well, for the first time in a long time uh, and called the election. He still had a majority government. There's a long way away before the next election, and he called it figuring, you know, there's going to be an economic downturn. I want to get another majority government so I can ride this out. And uh, Lincoln Alexander told the, the story. Actually, it was David Peterson that told it at, at, at the memorial service when Lincoln passed away. Uh, that he went to the to the lieutenant governor, who at that time was Lincoln Alexander, and said he wanted him to dissolve the legislature for an election. And he said the first thing Lincoln did, he looked at him, he says, have you have you thought this thing through? <laughs> yeah, understanding the ramifications of this? And obviously he didn't because he got his, his butt kicked, I guess, in the election. That was when Bob Ray got elected uh, as premier. So you're right, it can backfire. No, Link was absolutely right. He, there's no way he should have done that. And and he lived to regret it. That was it. That was, you know, one of the major, like I say, factors in that election. So probably fixed election date. So I think we're probably still going to go until June. Uh, and, and the strategy, I would think here, as you say, is maybe kind of play it low-key and just uh, go to, and, you know, any public appearances are going to be in front of the party faithful, and that's where you're going to get your sound bites. Uh, but after that, I guess the uh, part B of this is is hope and keep your fingers crossed that this pandemic uh, starts to go away and that we start opening up again. I mean, people are going to be in a much, much better mood uh, next spring into the summertime when we go to the polls here in Ontario. Uh, if if restaurants are open, if they can attend ball games, maybe even if the Blue Jays played on this side of the border, things like of that nature. That 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 puts people in a much better mode and mode of thinking, and, and that's the sort of thing that the government wants at this. Stage. Uh, this is not a very good time uh, to be going to the polls because there's a lot of people still ticked off that, that what they can't do and what they can't have right now. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, going to the polls right now is, uh, is it, it, it's, it's a, there's an unforeseen factor that we they don't know what's going to happen. Is there, is there a bubbling animosity out there? That, that, that they don't see. I mean, they can do they can do all the you know the polling and that that they want, but if there's something that is unknown, 
just below the surface that people are ticked off about. That's that's where you really you're taking a chance, and and this and this could be a, a perfect example of that. The other aspect of this, too, and it's an important part when we get into election mode, uh, is performance in this. And uh, we know that at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Premier Ford and, and the Prime Minister, as a matter of fact, just about all the Premiers, had very high approval ratings for, for that first wave, the way they handled it. You know, we weren't crazy about the lockdown, but we understood, okay, this has to happen, and we're going to try to, you know, knock the virus down. We get that. But the more it was prolonged, and especially here in Ontario, uh, with the, this late, latest lockdown that still has a lot of people angry right now. How long are voters' memories in a situation like that? Short. <laughs> voters' <laughs> memories. Voters' memories are short. And, you know, that's, and that's what you know, politicians count on that. You know, they, you know, you know, something that you and I might be talking about one day, and there's, you know, all hellfire going on because of it, Two weeks from now, people won't, won't remember. Or they've got, we, you and I talked about this before, Bill. People have lives, and they've got other things on their mind. And whatever nuance might happen at Queen's Park or in Ottawa doesn't really hold a lot of water for them until election time. And that's when they, in probably the last week in election, when they turn their minds to, the events of the day, what issues are, uh, are meaningful to them. But until then, it's just, it's kind of white noise. Well, it, it, I guess it just validates that old point about all politics is local. You know, how is this affecting my life? You know, in my neighborhood, with my family, with my kids going to school, my job, things of this nature, uh, you know, can I go on vacation? If, if the, everything is good and you're figuring, hey, life is not bad, you're probably not angry at the government. You may not be ecstatic of who is governing at the time, but you're, you're comfortable with it. Uh, and, and that's obviously the game that, that, that Ford's going to be shooting for here. Of course it is. At summertime, it's, it's a good time just to kind of float through the province. Not do anything spectacular, but, you know, meet some people here and there. And not, not be in their face. Nobody wants a politician in their face during the summer. I mean, that's, that's been a long tradition that you do not do that. Uh, summer campaigns are not good, great campaigns because people... Have, uh, their minds are on their, their you know, holidays and, and vacation and traveling and staying at cottages. They're, they're there. That's where their head's at. It's not hearing some politician drone on about whatever policy they may or may not do. Uh, does the federal government understand that? <laughs> it looks like that's what we might be doing. Well, I think yeah, but they, theirs will be towards the end of the summer when okay. you know, a lot of things are starting to wrap up. Yeah, uh, but you know, just just to talk about that from the bill, there's a pile of bills federally that are just going to fall off the table. Oh yeah, a ton. I, I, I see Canadian Press carried a list just recently, and there was a lot of what I consider at least uh, fairly important stuff going on, and uh, the budget bill is one of them. But the, the Senate will pass that. I don't think that's going to be a problem. But there's there's other things that you know that should go on and it and they're not because once once they uh, once they you know get the drop the writ and say we're going to election then everything just just falls off the table. 
Uh, well, that's a story we'll talk about when they finally drop the writ. And as you say, that may be sooner than later. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Uh, have a great, oh, have a safe trip home, first of all. Have a good weekend. We'll talk again soon. Okay, Bill. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Shocking stories yesterday, of course, about the the revelation uh, as they told us uh, just about 24 hours ago, of course, about uh, the 751 uh, bodies that were found at Maryvale and uh, Kamloops, of course, just a couple of weeks before that. And it's uh, thankfully, uh, it has been a catalyst for a conversation about the residential schools and the impact that they've had. Uh, on the indigenous peoples in this country for so many years. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Verna George. Uh, Verna is the daughter of a survivor of Ontario's Mohawk Institute Residential School. Uh, she holds two degrees from Trent University, one in economic development, the other in native studies, and a graduate of the University of Windsor Faculty of Law as well. Uh, Verna, it's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you. Um, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll ask you for another same question I asked rhetorically just before we went into the news break there. Uh, this latest information, is is this going to make a difference? Is this going to be the catalyst for change that we've been looking for for generations? I hope so. I hope every time um, more children, bodies are recovered, that it keeps the conversation going on exactly what happened to Indigenous people and what continues to happen to Indigenous peoples. So I, you know, that's one thing that I strive to do is to provide education and presentations um, and to make sure that um, our young, our young people, our young students know what actually happened in the past, because that is, that actually gives me hope that they'll continue on and, and, and try and rectify these, um, this, all this damage that has been done. Why was there and is there to this day so little information about, about residential schools? Uh, I, I know, you know, we, I, I can go way, way back to my elementary school days. I was raised in the Catholic system, and, and we were told about missionaries, uh, that were going out to these, uh, you know, remote places to, to teach the little, you know, well, Indians, as they called them back in those mm -hmm. days, the language and, and to educate them. And we thought, well, that's a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, th th that was the story, and we all bought into it. Yes. Yes, that was their narrative. That was um, their way of ensuring that no more questions would be asked of, why are you doing this? Um, what, you know, how any kind of... Um, yardstick on is it working or you know are you teaching these children what you want to teach them um none of that no no accountability was was done and now because we are recovering all these little indigenous souls that now that has to be done that conversation has to be had now people need to be held accountable for you know, for this 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 time that we're going through, I mean, this is a such a hard time. Um, every time that you know bodies are recovered, it is you know it, it's for me and like my my views are that it um, it does kind of knock the wind out of you because it is when you stop and think about exactly what they were trying to do. And the only reason they were trying to do it is because they were they were Indians. You know that that makes you 
take a step back and, and realize that, oh my gosh, like my ancestors had a target on their back all this time. I still have a target on my back. You know, I need to do something. I need to do better for my kids that they don't have to live in a world that views them as less than. There are, I guess, two groups, probably many more than that, but I mean, we grieve, of course, for the the children that lost their lives, and and I still would love to see some sort of an inquiry as to exactly what happened and and how many of these children died, and and that's one thing, and we're shocked, of course, by the the enormity of, of the numbers that we're seeing. But the other group, and you just touched on it a second ago, Verna, are the survivors, uh, those that still have the scars of, of what they went through. Uh, they've lived that for many, many years right now and, and had to live with that and, and uh, the grief and the memories. And we've, we've talked to other people that have gone to residential schools uh, and, and how that has impacted their lives even to this day. And uh, it's it's one of those things where we haven't paid much attention to that. We don't pay much attention to mental health issues in this country at all. We're starting to increase that, and that's wonderful news. But this is one aspect of it that, that really needs to be talked about, I think, is, is the impact that it had on Indigenous peoples and their families and continues to this day. You're right. That's, that's, that's correct. Um, for me and my story, um, I, I, when, these, um, when these recoveries happen, um, I'm spoke to my mom and, you know, talked talk about things, how she was feeling. And, um, you know, it just, a, a wave of sadness comes over her because, you know, she has to think about some of the kids that um, they told her that, you know, went back home. Maybe they really didn't go back home. Maybe, maybe that's what happened to them is that they're lying in an unmarked grave somewhere. So I, I, it is a conversation that has to be, that has to be done. And I think, again, the survivors have been through so much, um, you know, horrific stories of what they endured. Um, so I think it's time for the, the next generation to pick up, you know, pick that up and, and go with it and, and strive for a better, a better life for, you know, the following generations. Like, I, I just, I hope that people don't get um, numb to these numbers coming up and popping up on the, on the TV and hearing the First Nation and the Chiefs have to speak about, you know, the members of their community being recovered. That's my hope that, you know, why I, why I'm here today is to make sure that people understand, even from my perspective, my, you know, lonely little perspective, um, that it, it, it matters. And if it matters for you being a decent human being, you'd want to know more on how and why and how we can all do better. Well, you know, they talked about truth and reconciliation, and of course, uh, former Senator Sinclair chaired that committee uh, and did some extensive work on this, and as we've always said, uh, there can be no reconciliation without truth. This is exposing an uncomfortable truth in our history, and I I can tell you, an awful lot of people that I've talked to and have, have 
contacted me over the last couple of weeks since the Kamloops revelation, uh, are having a lot of trouble with this, accepting this, and, and not that they're denying it, that, that it actually happened, uh, because we don't look at ourselves as Canadians as, as people would, would, that would allow for this to go on. And, you know, then you start to hear the rationalizations. Well, you know, people like McDonald and Ryerson, they were just victims of the social mores of their time. And uh, that, that's, that's not a reason. That's not an excuse for this. I under, you've got to understand the gravity of this, because even John A. McDonald, uh, in one speech was quoted as simply saying the whole purpose of these schools was to eradicate uh, the indigenous culture. They want them to speak English. They want them to be Christians. They, in other words, we're, it's colonialism, isn't it? Yes. We're yes. better than you, and we're going to make you like us. Yes. And for some of those kids, their entire life, they did that, right? When they were, if they found, I mean, they, they stated that a three-year-old was found in Kamloops. Mm-hmm. And that poor child in those three short years was made to feel like they didn't matter, that they weren't good enough being born indigenous, that they needed to change. And, and somewhere along the line, someone thought that that wasn't good enough. And that, and I, you know, nobody, I don't know the circumstances of how that child died, but I don't know what circumstances would be reason enough to kill a three-year-old, and except in the government and the church's eyes, was that he, he or she was born indigenous. And, you know, when you stop and think about that, like, I, it is a hard truth. And, that, and that's what people don't, you know, don't want don't to talk about, because it is hard. You know, um, it's hard for us. Some of the things that I... I read even this morning, um, you know, made me sad and made me tear up because, oh my goodness, yes, those survivors um, had to go through so much. And because of their age now, they remember these things if they see them on TV. And it, and she described her grandmother and it was just horrible. And I can't imagine having to do that and, and try and protect, you know, your, your, grandmother from the news because it's going to revert them back to that time and that in in those feelings so scared you know um that fear and hurt verda did your mother talk to you about her experience when she was at mohawk institute she did she was there for seven years so when she was six years old she went um and she doesn't i mean she she has stated that she didn't encounter any, you know, um, sexual abuse. Um, of course, there was physical, there was beatings. If they didn't do what they were told, they, they got beat. Um, so she told me that. She told me her chores. Um, since the, the Mohawk Institute right now is under renovation, you can't actually go inside. Mm-hmm. But the Woodland Cultural Center offers virtual tours, which I've, taken with her and I've taken with some of my non-Indigenous friends now. They want to learn more about this. Um, and it's just, it, you know, the stories that she's told me, it's good to see exactly what she was talking about, like where the boys and the girls ate and where they, you know, had their, you know, where they had to work and sew and all that, all those things. She does talk about that. So I, I think that's a good thing, too, that she talks about it and she gets it out. Um, but 
it's not, I mean, that's just one story. That's just my story. There's, you know, so many others that don't have that, um, that kind of narrative. The government uh, made some commitments over the last couple of days, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard about, uh, first of all, offering some money uh, for other uh, ex- excavations and investigations, I guess, of some of the other sites to see. And uh, I, I was going to say see if there were more graves. I think it's uh, pretty much agreed that there are in, in many of these other places uh, where they're going to be exploring. It's, it's, it's going to cost an awful lot of money. It's going to take an awful lot of time to do that. That's one element of this. What else has to happen, though, Verna, for the families that were involved in this uh, to bring closure to this? I think it's going to vary from everybody, but I think my my thoughts are that um, to achieve reconciliation, there has to be um, forgiveness, and in order to be able to forgive someone, you have to they have to take accountability of what they've done. And that, to me, isn't just the service, it's actual things put in place. It is funding. It is, you know, following some of the calls to action, um, you know, to 70, 71, all of those ones that want to have the records and, and, and know who these children were. Those, those concrete actions need to be done or else it's just, it's just the same. We're just repeating all the time of listening to the promises that, you know, the the government tells us and always waiting. And um, I think maybe now that we're hopefully we're done waiting for those for those actions to come. The federal government is, is, is well, doing a, a number of things, as we said, with the, the money that's involved in this. Uh, the prime minister and, and others have been uh, quite contrite about this and uh, not understanding the gravity of it. I mean, we even go back with, you know, conservative leader Erno O'Toole some months ago, I guess about a year ago now, actually defending the residential schools, uh, which I'm going to put down to simply lack of information about what was going on. And, and I guess a lot of us probably uh, fall into that category. But when we look at what has to happen going forward here, and you said, you know, for there to be reconciliation, there has to be forgiveness. Uh, but for there to be forgiveness, uh, and I'll go back to what I learned in Catholic school when I was a kid, uh, you have to own up to your sins uh, and, and say, I was wrong. Uh, that's, that's part of the process. Uh, and to that point, the Catholic Church was involved in many of these facilities. Uh, the Pope has said nothing. He said it was a tragedy. Well, that's, that's pretty obvious that it is. Mm-hmm. But many of people are saying, look, there should be a, a, an apology from the Catholic Church. Do you agree with that? I think for some people that might, they might need that. And yes, for them, yes. Um, but it is ironic, isn't it, what they taught you and what they've chosen to do? Um, and And... So, I, I mean, I can't, um, the Mohawk Institute was Anglican, so I don't, um, you know, I, I don't know if I need that from the Catholic Church. It would be nice to see, but again, I mean, are those just words, or, are you, or is there going to be something else put in place to, you know, to ensure that people know that they are sorry, that they acknowledge what, what hand they've done in this? 
And those are strong words that have to come out. I mean, there has to be some sort of an admission uh, that that one of the stated goals of these was was basically to to wipe out the indigenous culture, the indigenous language. They wanted this whole generation of children to speak English and be Christian, as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, embracing their own cultures and their own languages. And, mm-hmm. and I'm sure, as your mother told you, and many of the victims have told us, they were punished if if they spoke their own language, at least in the school environment, anyway. And mm-hmm. those, I don't care how what the mind it was back then we now know that it was wrong and there has to be some admission of that wouldn't you think yes i do i do think that and that maybe that's just the first step right it's the Mm. first step that they can take to say yes we what we did was wrong um and now let's work together on on how we can fix this because because you're right it is um you know, I, I don't want to see this pushed to the side again. I mean, this this report came out in 2000, and I think they did this in 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation mm-hmm. Commission. It's 2021, six years later. You know, between then and now, like, if you're not Indigenous, you probably wouldn't have thought about it at all. But on the... but. Indigenous people have always known these things that they had um, recommended, and none of them were getting done. And so it's, it's uh, yeah. Well, the it's Prime a, Minister mentioned after Kamloops, as you recall, he, he developed and, and actually announced a strategy, uh, most of which actually were, were simply some of the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Committee. So I, I don't want to say better late than never, because that's rather trite given the circumstances here. But uh, what you're looking for here, I, I, I assume what you're saying here, Verna, is action, not words. Yes. Well, both. We, I think we some people want to hear the words, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean... We need to hear those words and hold hold into it. Like many, I, I've I've seen over the the past two days, how many times he's been quoted on how then his relationship with Indigenous people is one is one of his most you know important relationships. You know, we remember those words that he said, and he's not been doing enough to prove those words. Well, we'll follow the words and the actions, I guess, going forward. Uh, Verna, thank you so much for spending some time with it today. I, I know it's a very emotional time for you. Uh, we really do appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us. Thank you very much for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.